Welcome to New Creation, a home for the creative community of Los Angeles. For more information, visit our website at newcreationla.com. And now, the sermon. Well, friends, uh, today is the last day of our series on asking questions, the path to faith. And this is... uh, part two on understanding the spiritual realm. Last week, we looked at angels, and today we're taking a look at uh, Satan and demonic activity. And so as a little ambiance, my neighbors are uh, cutting down trees with chainsaws right now. So if you hear that in the background at all, um, that's uh, for your enjoyment to just create the mood around this topic. So... um, Today, we're uh, looking at the question of how do we make sense of the spiritual realm? And uh, you just heard this story in Matthew. And uh, kind of what's happening in this section of Matthew is that we have Jesus revealing his identity, that he is God. And he's revealing his identity by demonstrating his authority. And so we see him demonstrating his authority in his teaching. Now remember, Jesus is not a trained teacher, and yet people are marveling at his teaching because he teaches with such authority. And so he's uh, revealing his identity in the way that he is teaching with authority. He's also, uh, in this section of Matthew, revealing his identity in his authority to heal, and his authority over nature. So in chapter 14, just a couple chapters ahead, uh, we see Jesus perform the miracle of feeding the 5,000. We see him walk on water. And in today's story, we see him healing a man. Um, And it's also connected to his authority in the spiritual realm. Uh, Jesus is not just healing a man, but he is healing a man who is being oppressed by a demon. And so Jesus has this incredible authority in all these different areas that is pointing to his identity, that he is God. And so uh, before we dig into the story a little bit more, I want to give us a little bit of a backstory with regard to Satan and demons, where they come from. So let's take a look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and also we're going to look at Jude 6. So, uh, 2 Peter. For if God did not spare angels when they sin, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... Okay, so what we see in this little section here is that there was a time when the angels in heaven, when some of the angels sinned. We talked about angels last week having a moral will. And so there was a time when a group of angels sinned, and when that happened, they were cast out of heaven, that they had this... uh, chains upon them in some capacity. Some capacity, they became limited in their power. 
So Jude 6, we see this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so we see the angels here leaving their proper dwelling. That is leaving the heavenly realm. And so that gives us a little bit of backstory. Um, rebellion, this rebellion of the angels, we know that this happens sometime after the sixth day of creation when God saw all that he made and proclaimed it good. As we talked about last week, God creating the, the angels as part of the creation story. So he makes it all. We get to end of day six, and he says, it's good. He looks over all of it and says it's good. And then in Genesis 3, we see that Satan is there, and Satan is tempting Eve. And so sometime in that gap uh, between the end of day six and Genesis 3 would have taken place this rebellion of angels, where we have... Uh, uh, fragment of the age of the angels cast out of heaven and that they are chained and they are destined for judgment. And so those fallen angels are what we call demons. Their leader is the one that we call Satan. Satan is the personal name of the head of demons. Uh, if you were to look in Job 1, Matthew Matthew chapter 4, we see that name used, Satan. But there are other names uh, in the scripture that are used for Satan. Uh, he is called the devil in Matthew 4. He is called the serpent in Genesis 3. Uh, in our story today, we see him referred to as Beelzebul. Uh, we also see him referred to as the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and the evil one. Uh, these are all different titles for the head of demons, Satan. And John 8, 44, gives us a really good description of Satan. So let's take a look there. John 8, 44 says of Satan, you are the father, the devil. Uh, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. And so here's uh, who that father is, the devil, Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What a description. Okay, so the goal of Satan... The goal of demons is this. It's to oppose God. It's to seek and destroy every good work of God. It is ultimately to promote evil. It is to take anything good and it is to distort it, to pervert it into evil. And so we see that in Genesis 3, uh, Satan tempts Eve. And he tries to do the same thing with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He wants to destroy God's creation. 
uh, in the garden in Genesis 3. In uh, his account with Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he wants to destroy the work of redemption, and he does it by tempting. His tactics and all demons' tactics are lies, deception, murder, and everything that moves people away from God. Okay, so uh, another goal then is to blind people to the gospel. That is the goal of Satan. That is the goal of demons. And we actually see it all the way back in the Old Testament. If we look at Deuteronomy 32, 17, there it says, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. And so this is uh, referring to the pagan religions around Israel. Uh, and so they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. And so he's saying that uh, the gods surrounding Israel and the surrounding nations are actually demons, posing as gods. Pretty, uh, pretty profound. Um, in the New Testament, if we look at 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we see this goal again. Uh, there it says, in their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. And so what do Satan and demons want to do? They want to oppose God. They want to blind people to the gospel. But their power is limited. And we see this again through the whole story of scripture. Uh, if we think back to the story of Job, Job challenges God and says, your servant Job is only faithful because he's got it good. If I were to make it hard on him, he wouldn't worship you anymore. And so he has to ask permission to be able to do that. And so he is not free to just do whatever he wants, that he is bound in his power. He can only do what God allows him to do. Now, at the same time, it's important that we remember that God is not the author of what he does. For God can allow evil and use it for good. And again, we see that throughout the scriptures. Ultimately, we see that at the cross. The most evil act of all human history was the act that became the act for the most good. It was the act of salvation. So God can use evil and use it for good. Uh, but he is not the author of evil. That is Satan. So Satan's power is limited. We see in those verses we looked at earlier that Satan and demons are kept in eternal change, uh, chains rather. So in some capacity, they are bound and they can be successfully resisted by Christians through the authority that Christ gives. Let's take a look at James 4, verse 7. There it says, submit yourselves Therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we, in Jesus, have power 
to resist Satan, to resist the devil, to resist demons. And so his power is limited. They no longer have, that is Satan and the demons, the power that they did as angels because they are in some capacity now bound. I think it's also important to note that uh, Satan demons cannot read your mind and they cannot know the future, that only God sees those things and only God knows those things. But what they can do is observe. And so sometimes we'll hear reports from uh, fortune tellers, even somebody that visits uh, a fortune teller of some kind and say, oh, there was um, some kind of spirit there. And they uh, were able to uh, restate what someone had for breakfast. Uh, They know details of a conversation. Uh, They know details where a person hides their money. But those are all things that could come by simple observation of a demon. The demon saw those things and not those thoughts. So again, helpful to us in knowing that information that demons can't read minds, they can't know the future, only God knows those things. Okay, so that's our little uh, kind of backdrop to who Satan is, who demons are. Let's jump back into the story now. So... Verse uh, 22 of Matthew 12 tells us this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Okay, so demonic activity is described with differing phrases in the New Testament. And they're used pretty interchangeably as well. So we see things like demon oppressed, like we see here in Matthew 12. Uh, In other places, we see the term demon possessed. In other places, we see uh, someone with an unclean spirit. We also see the phrase someone has a demon. And so those are all phrases that, again, are not really distinguished in what they look like, used pretty interchangeably. So the question is, how do we think about demons? And I think most people, the idea of demons is probably shaped by Hollywood, shaped by movies. And so if we think of demons, we think of movies like The Exorcist, right? And so... um, it raises the question, could something like that, the exorcist, happen to Christians? And so what is it there that uh, that we think of with the demon activity? We think of a demon that has come in and totally taken control over a person so that the person has no more will of their own, no more ability to choose right and wrong, and they're totally controlled by this demon. Now, Uh, Can that happen to a Christian? We would say no. Uh, The Christians always have the ability to resist, as we looked at uh, a little bit earlier. However, what demons can do, and what we see them doing most of the time in the New Testament, is not this total control, but rather this tempting influence, this cunning and clever approach to human beings. Uh, One of my 
favorite books is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you've never read it, I encourage you to just even thumb through it a little bit and read through it a little bit. And the premise is there is a demon in training. And his uncle, uh, who's a demon, is training him. And he says, here's how you tempt human beings. Here's the subtle ways that you do this. And when you start to read it, you go, oh my goodness, this is so subtle and I can see myself in all of it. So while demons can't just overtake a Christian, they can have this oppression, they can have this influence that they are trying to wield. All right, so this is uh, the man in 23. He's oppressed by a demon. He has uh, some physical things that are happening to him, and so Jesus is able to heal those in dealing with the demon. So let's take a look at verse 23. There it says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And so what's happening here is... No one throughout biblical history has exercised a demon, has cast out a demon, has ended the influence, the oppression, the possession of a person. Jesus is doing this for the first time, and they are amazed. And they're looking at the humility and gentleness of Jesus and going, can this be a son of David? The warrior king, David, because he's so gentle, right? And yet he's doing this thing that we've never seen done before. And so how did the Pharisees Pharisees respond? Let's take a look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so again, Beelzebul, another name for Satan, the prince of demons. And so the Pharisees are claiming, this is not of God. This is not a son of David. He is doing this by the power of Satan, which was punishable by death in Israel. If you were practicing any kind of magic or anything under the power of Satan, that was punishable by death. So this accusation, it's Beelzebul that he is doing this. He's tapping into Beelzebul's power, into Satan's power. They're also saying, so we should kill him. He should be dead. And so Jesus asked this question, uh, well, by what name do your sons cast out demons? Now, it's important to note, there's no actually examples of anyone in history trying or actually casting out demons, but uh, we see in some extra biblical writings that it was uh, possibly attempted. And so Jesus may be referring to here this idea of um, your generation has tried to do this and can't. Whose name are they doing it by? You're accusing me by doing it in the, the power of Satan, but whose power have they been doing it by unsuccessfully, mind you? So, um, let's take a look at how Jesus responds to this accusation in verse 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, again, who can know thoughts? God alone, not Satan, not demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And so Jesus is using this analogy of a house. It's almost this analogy of a team. And he's saying, how could I play against my own team? Satan can't cast out Satan. And so he describes, here's what's happening. Let's take a look at verse 28. What he describes in verse 28 is what's really going on. And so he says this, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You want to know why you've never seen this happen before? But because it is only now that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Something has changed. There's someone here who can read thoughts. It is God. That is who is in your presence. Let's take a look at verse 29. And we get this, again, a little further house analogy. Jesus says, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And so the analogy is this. If you come into a guy's house, into a a strong man's house, physically strong, you can't go in there and just start taking stuff. What has to happen first? You're going to have to to bind up that strong man. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying he has done. He's saying, you know who the strong man is? It's Satan. He's come in the house and he's bound up Satan. And he's now freeing his people from Satan's influence. It is only through Jesus that we can have that power against Satan, against demons. Jesus is the one who's bound the strong man. And in him, we have that same power. Luke 10, we see Jesus gives powers then to his disciples to cast out demons. And in this account... Uh, They're given this power and they start to marvel at it. Look what we can do. And Jesus kind of pulls it back and says, you know what? Don't celebrate this power that you're able to have over demons. What you should celebrate is that you are saved, that your names are in the book of life, that you have salvation. Stay focused on that. And then we see that same power over demons continues in Acts in James, in 1 Peter. And what we see is that all who are ministering in the name of Jesus have this power over demons. How incredible. Then, what does Jesus do? Let's take a look at verse 30. What Jesus does is he draws this line in the sand. It's an eternal line in the sand. 
And here's what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Kind of a mic drop moment for Jesus here. Jesus is saying, guess what? There is no neutral ground in this thing. Jesus is either good or he's evil. He's either God or the devil. You have to pick one side or the other. You cannot stay neutral. And the Pharisees are claiming he is the devil. He is Beelzebul. But Jesus is proclaiming the opposite, that he is God, that the kingdom of God has come. And so where do we stand? Which side have we taken? How do we know if we're for Jesus or against Jesus? Well, here Jesus goes in the next couple verses, and here's what he says. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so these are some pretty big verses here. So Jesus is saying sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. So what does that look like? What does sin and blasphemy look like? Speaking uh, a word against Jesus, speaking a word against the Son of Man, Jesus saying that can actually be forgiven. And again, we see that in the scriptures. We see his disciple Peter do it. He denies Jesus, says, I do not know the man. And after the resurrection of Jesus, he's restored and says, feed my sheep. And so there can be these moments of denial even of Jesus that uh, is not unforgivable, that we can be restored back into our relationship with Jesus. Um, So to blaspheme the Son of Man would be uh, to deny him. Now, what's interesting here is it's uh, referring to a denial in this as opposed to a pattern, a, uh, a lifelong denying that never stops. And so this blasphemy against the Son can be forgiven. Sin can be forgiven. What is sin? We can uh, simply put it like this. Sin is doing the things that God tells us not to do or not doing the things that he commands us to do. And so Jesus says all those things can be forgiven, okay? Which is very comforting because guess what? We're all guilty of those things. And so Jesus is saying you can be with me and have forgiveness in those things. Now, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is not forgivable. And so we've looked at blasphemy and sin against 
the Son against Jesus describe that. So let's take a little further look on the other side then. Well, how is that different from blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is this. It's speaking against the Holy Spirit. It's speaking against his testimony. What is his testimony? It is Jesus is God. And it's a perpetual, it's an ongoing resisting the testimony of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is referring to. And it is also an attributing to Satan what is from God, which, by the way, is Satan's goal. Okay? So um, what he is looking to do is saying, oh, what's good is actually evil. And what's evil? Oh, that's actually good. That is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And it's exactly what we see the Pharisees doing in this story. We see Jesus do good. He uh, heals this man. He has power over this demon. And it's good. And the Pharisee says, no, it's evil. It's from Beelzebub. It's from Satan. And Jesus is saying, you can't do that. That is unforgivable to attribute the good of God to Satan. That is to blaspheme the spirit. To blaspheme the spirit is ultimately a rejection of Jesus as God's good gift. That is the testimony of the spirit, that Jesus is God's good gift, and it's to reject that. And it's a persistent, continual unrepentant rejection of God and his commands. So again, to call the commands of God evil is to blaspheme the spirit of God. To persistently reject Jesus as the one who alone perfectly lived out God's commands on our behalf, that is blasphemy. And Jesus says, that it comes with a consequence, that it comes with judgment. He says it will not be forgiven in the age to come. So what he's talking about here is the judgment of hell. Jesus is giving a warning, as he does many times throughout the gospel. He says forgiveness with God is available to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Jesus, give, uh, Jesus gave his life to pay the debt of sin, and he lived this perfect life to merit the eternal favor of God on our behalf. And that is this great exchange. We get the credit for Jesus' perfect life, and he takes the penalty for all of our rebellion, all of our sin. And that is good news. That's the good gift that Jesus is to us. And so to reject the gift of God's Son is actually to reject forgiveness, which is to reject ultimately God. So hell is the place 
where God's blessed presence is not. The Bible describes that as an awful, awful place. And so essentially, it says this, if you don't want God, there comes a point where God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. And many have asked the question, how could God send good people to hell? Because we don't have a problem with God sending uh, Hitler to hell. In fact, we want God's justice on evil. If he doesn't care about justice, then he can't be good. And so we want him to judge evil. What we seem to have a problem with is God sending someone to hell even though they are what we might describe in our culture as someone good. A kind person, a compassionate person, an honest person, a philanthropist who just doesn't happen to believe. Why would God send that person to hell? That doesn't seem right. But again, hell is a place for rejecting what is ultimately good. God says, this is my son. He is the only one who is perfectly good, and he is your gift. And so if we reject that perfect goodness, if we reject Jesus, then we are rejecting God. And so we spend eternity without him. It's to say, God, we don't want you. And so that goes for Satan, that goes for demons, and that goes for humans who reject the perfect goodness of Jesus Christ. Yet, if we receive him, if we have faith in his life, death, and resurrection, then we are united to him throughout all eternity. And that, my friends, is life. Not just life in the future, but life now. We can have that quality of eternal life, life with God now that fulfills us. So, I want to bring it back to the original question. With all this, this story in mind and all that we've heard and these warnings, how do we make sense of the spiritual realm, especially uh, with regard to Satan and demons? in light of all of this. So, what does demonic activity look like today? Not all evil and sin is from Satan and demons, but some of it is. And so, if we look at the overall emphasis of the New Testament, there's very little information on demonic activity. There are um, not really descriptions for the lives of believers. Here's how you resist demonic activity. Rather, the emphasis is this. It's telling believers, don't sin. Live for righteousness. That's how we're to live. Because again, this demonic activity is trying to influence us. And so it's not the sense of, oh, the devil made me do it. But it's the sense of resist him, resist sin, flee from sin, live for righteousness. That is the emphasis of the scripture. 
And we see the same approach in the preaching to unbelievers. It's preach the gospel, the good news, with the dynamic, transforming power to change hearts. We don't start with demonic strongholds. There may be demonic opposition that arises, and when it does, we are to pray. We are to go to to battle in prayer, but it's not the starting place for us. So, demonic possession, can it happen to Christians? And again, we talked about this a little earlier. If we mean that a demon totally takes control of a Christian where they have no will anymore, the answer is no, that cannot happen to Christians. But can demonic activity encounter Christians? And the answer there is yes. But we also have to ask this question that um, uh, a systematic theologian, Wayne Grudem, that I mentioned last week, asks, is we have to ask about the question of sin. How much can a genuine Christian let their lives be dominated by sin and still be a Christian? Like, that's really hard to answer in the, in the abstract, right? How much sin? Like, seven? I don't know. What does that even mean? How much sin, right? And so it's to speak to an abnormal situation. When you have Christians that are maybe not engaged in um, the church, when they're not using um, the power that God has given them, uh, that we've seen through the story, uh, how much can they be influenced by demonic activity? Uh, It's hard to answer, but the main point is, is that Um, That should be the abnormal. That should be isolated when those kinds of things happen. Now, what do we do with the strange experiences that we have? Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me about ghosts. How do ghosts fit into all of this? So if we're defining ghosts as a lingering spirit, someone dies and their spirit lingers on earth after they are dead. Well, we've got to, again, look to Scripture. So I want to take just a moment and answer this as it, it is connected here. So Luke 16, 22 and 23. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his right side. And so what we see in the scriptures is this, that when people die, they go to their designated place. Abraham's side is this metaphor for heaven, right? Hades is another word for for judgment, for hell. And so people die, they go to their respective places. If we look a little further at Uh, chapter 16, verse 26, we see this in this conversation in the same uh, episode here. And besides all of this, between us and you, and that is uh, Abraham's side and Hades, heaven and hell, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so when a person dies, the scriptures tell us they go to their designated place, heaven or hell. And there is a great 
chasm between those two places that no one can cross over, which means this. There are no spirits that just linger. In 2 Corinthians 5, um, Paul tells us that to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's another way of affirming this truth. Uh, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So when people die, their spirits do not linger. The scriptures don't have any category for that. The scriptures are clear that they go to their designated place. So what does that mean? What's the implication? Um, That it is something else. So for people that have had experiences, I do not deny those experiences at all. But I think most likely what's happening there is that that would be an example of demonic activity. Demonic activity trying to influence people. Trying to get them to disbelieve the scriptures. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, chapter 11, verse 14. Let's take a look there. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 1 John 4, 1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we need to be aware of this, that Satan can uh, disguise himself as an angel of light. And so anything that may appear to us to be from the spiritual realm, it must be tested. It must be tested by what the scriptures proclaim. And anything out of accord with God's word is not from God. Okay, I hope that helps with uh, the questions of ghosts and how that can actually be demonic activity. So I want to close with this. Our response. What should we do? Well, we need to be reminded this, that the spiritual realm, which we cannot see, is real. There are battles being fought that we do not see. And we should be mindful of this, especially now, when we see the violence and destruction happening in our world, knowing that there are things going on beyond our physical reality that are playing into this that we cannot see. That the devil and demons are at work to destroy. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that demons are often just subtly influencing or oppressing, that they are clever and cunning, and that they are seeking to influence us away from God. They are seeking to influence the world into chaos and destruction. Yet in Christ, and only in Christ, we have the power to rebuke Satan and demons and to resist Satan and demons. And so we have tools that God has given us. We have power that God has given us. We can call upon the name of Jesus in the face of any of those things at any moment, and they will shudder in fear. 
So be aware, but do not fear. We're to be reminded in our response of this, that the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus Christ has come and he is coming again. And when he returns, he will judge the world. And so if you have not put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus, let me tell you, do not tarry. Salvation is offered to you freely today, but there will come a day when the door closes. So take hold of the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and believe in his word, for life is to be found in him. Amen? Lastly, I want to just say this. We've been doing this series on asking questions, and I want to encourage you, keep asking questions. Asking questions is the path to faith. And I want you to know that I am here to engage in these questions with you, uh, whatever questions you may have. I may not have all the answers. Actually, I can tell you I don't have all the answers. There is much uh, that is mystery, but I would love to just engage with you in the questions. So church family, keep asking hard questions and seeking Jesus in them. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks today for your word, this story. This is such a huge topic that we've uh, tried to cover today. And so, Lord, help us to remember the main things, that um, the spiritual realm is real and that you have given us power, that Satan and demons can be resisted, that they are clever, that they are cunning, but we can resist them. There are battles going on around us that we cannot see, Lord, so help us to take comfort in what you are doing in our world and remind us that Jesus is coming again and that the offer of salvation is here today. And so, Lord, if there are any listening that have not taken hold of that offer of salvation, of forgiveness, that you would soften those hearts, that you would tell them, I am here, repent of your sin and believe, and you will be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. And we give you thanks for it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this sermon and encourage you to become a regular member of our online community. To find out more about the church, visit our website at newcreationla.com.